0: You are listening to The Pilgrim on the 405 with Will Christ. Join him as he and his guests discover how businesses thrive in California.
1: Well, welcome to The Pilgrim on the 405. We have this morning, we have a pilgrim. He's sitting here in his car on the 405. So we're going to have a great conversation with a great person who's got a great passion for a great job. Yeah, uh, this is George McGraw from Dig Deep. Welcome to the Pilgrim on the 405, George. Thanks for having me. Will. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, G- George, <clears throat> let me tell you how I met you guys. Is that fair? Okay. And then I yeah, want you to tell do. me about yeah. how how you came up with Dig Deep. Okay. So, so this was uh, this is about 9 months ago uh, when I was out in Riverside at St. Michael's Church Handing out food to a hundred people that came every Thursday. We would collect the food from inland uh, harvest, bring it over to the church, give it out. And one of the people who was really in charge of it was an Apache Indian, a very good friend named Singing Bird. And Singing Bird came over to my, came over to me and he whispered in my ear. He said, do you know, do you know, Will, that there are lots of homes on the Navajo reservation that do not have running water? And I said, no, uh, no, I don't. And he said, that's true. So I came home, and and I have a good friend who digs wells for uh, uh, communities in Uganda. Picked up the phone, called him, and said, hey, Link, I need some help here. Uh, Navajo Reservation apparently doesn't have a lot of water in their houses he said, I know, I know. And I said, well, is that something you're interested in? He said, no, I'm focusing on Uganda. And I said, well, maybe there's something I can do. So I came back and just did a Google search. And up came dig deep. And what I was so impressed with was you guys solved the problem. Because these houses are all separated by sometimes miles. And so just putting pipes down is not the solution. But when I saw what you did, and I want you to tell me about how you got there and what you are doing, I just declared I I am behind this 100%. I'm going to put together a network of people who are going to come up with $100,000 a year for this. We began to put together Episcopal bishops who were involved with it. I've got uh, uh, friends of mine in business who are going to, we're going to put this together. But tell us about how you came up with this fantastic, Solution to the problem of water on the Navajo Reservation.
0: Well, that has to be about the best intro I've ever got. <laughs> um, well, well, I think, I think like you and and like your friend who's working in Uganda. When I you know used to think of people without running water or sanitation, you know, flush toilets, I I would think of other countries immediately. You know, you think of places like Sub-Saharan Africa. You think of places like Latin America or or Southeast Asia, and you think. Surely that's not happening here, you know, in the U.S. and one of the richest democracies on Earth. Um, but sure enough, right here in the U.S., we have over two million people um, who don't have a sink or a toilet. And, you know, they're they're in all 50 states across the country. Um, but if we look at that data, uh, which we have, you realize that like there there are some things that all these groups have in common one one commonality is that, you know, race is the strongest predictor of whether you and your family will have running water. Um, and Indigenous folks are 19 times more likely not to have running water at home than a white family. And this is a huge problem on Native nations, um, like on the Navajo Nation, like you mentioned. Um, and so, you know, we have, you know, we're just one of, Hundreds of what they call wash organizations based in the U.S., water, sanitation and hygiene that work to make sure that folks around the world can get clean drinking water, water to bathe, water, water to cook. Um, but we're the only ones that are based here in the U.S. working here in the U.S. Um, and trying to meet this this really unmet need.
1: So talk to me about how you solve the problem of getting water to these isolated houses.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the toughest issue. So, like, a lot of these folks live rurally. And, you know, we made massive investments in the U.S. to build infrastructure to serve even remote parts of the country, starting with the New Deal, um, you know, back in the 30s. And, you know, we invested what would be today trillions of dollars building infrastructure like water lines to reach remote communities. And and there were just some communities that were left out of that equation from the beginning. One of the big ones were native reservations. And um, so in these areas, you have a lot of folks living really rurally. Um, and you know, some of them live in, in sort of family clusters, but on the Navajo nation, especially where a lot of families do, um, raise cattle or sheep, they live very separately from each other. And if you want to water, run a water line from the closest town out to one of these homes, you know, this could be a multi million dollar water line, um, or at least something in the high hundreds of thousands to reach a single home at the end of the line. And in that home, you're You're likely to have someone who can't afford necessarily to pay the expensive water bill that it would take to upkeep that line um or to cover those capital costs. so so those lines just haven't been built. Um, and I, I will say like I think i I still think those lines are worth building, and I think we're having that conversation now as a country, like everyone deserves infrastructure and how to get that to them. But in our current model, where really utilities have to figure out how to pay for this, um, you know by getting money from their clients through billing, like it just doesn't work. so, we, uh, we figured out a workaround, but I, I would love to take credit for it, but actually it was the idea of this woman named Darlene Arviso. Um, she's Navajo. She's a grandmother of four and she's a school bus driver. And she works in Theroux, New Mexico on the I 40 between, um, Albuquerque and Flagstaff. And she would drive her school bus every day and she'd drive the morning route and the evening route. And in between, she had this chunk of free time. And she was realizing over the course of several years that, you know, a couple times a month, kids wouldn't, Get on the bus and go to school, and you know she'd pick them up a day or two later, and she'd ask them like, you know what happened to you on Tuesday and they'd say, "Oh, you know, like I was out collecting water or I had to drive my mom to use a bathroom or like I was sick um, and and she realized that these kids were missing a lot of school because they didn't have running water at home um, and she thought, well, how could this be um and like so many of the people I work with, she didn't just have this thought, she actually sprung into action. And she got the um, the um school that she works at to, to ask a donor for a, a truck that you put a tank on the back of. And she would just sort of leave the hose in that tank and let it fill up at the school while she was driving her morning bus route. And then she'd park the school bus, get in that truck and retrace uh, her steps along the bus route, dropping as much water as she could off at each house. And folks would store that in, you know, Everything that could hold a drop of water. They'd come pouring out of their houses with like, you know, buckets and cups and mugs and pickle jars. And she'd fill all, all of it. Over the course of the years, you know, she, she was able to, they were able to save up some money. She bought a a big water truck that could hold a couple thousand gallons of water. Um, but still she was just getting a a couple hundred gallons of water to these folks every month, which, you know, would be enough to help, but certainly not enough to meet their need. I mean, you and I, the average American uses a hundred gallons of water a day person so that's not a lot of water. and so when we got there um, you know invited by Darlene and others to figure out how deep could help, um, we said, well, this is ingenious you know replacing permanent water lines with water trucks it's so flexible, um, it's so smart and so we began developing a series of wells first in this area and now across rural parts of New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah and those wells produce you know, clean, safe, regulated drinking water. And we put those into food grade trucks that are run by community members um, that we, in many cases, like, you know, pay to get commercial driver's licenses and give them great jobs. And then they deliver that water to homes. And instead of filling buckets and barrels like Darlene used to, now we go home to home and install these what we call home water systems, which are 1200 gallon underground tanks. You know, we bring a big excavator out there and put these tanks underground underground and we hook those up to a solar panel and a battery array and a controller, and uh, using that electricity, we pump the water into the house through a filter and an expansion tank and a water heater into sinks and often showers and toilets if the house already has them. We have a a pilot program now that's building bathrooms for for houses that don't have full bathrooms and in the end, you know now Navajo families who were really remote and for generations have been collecting water on foot or by car or in some cases by horse, often water that was contaminated and would make their families sick. Now those families are or have access to the same hot and cold running water that um, many of us, unfortunately, in this country take for granted.
1: Wow. It's amazing. Just amazing. I mean, when you talk about People walking or riding horses to get water. I mean, that really is, and that's, that's a different nation that does that.
0: It really does feel strange, isn't it? And I like India. Like it's one thing to have to get water from outside your home. I think at the last estimate, there were almost 44 million Americans who maybe have running water, but their tap water isn't safe to drink. And these folks are are buying bottled water. They're driving to some of those, you know, like water fill-up kiosks that we see all over Southern California. And they're they're hauling that water home. But to go the additional step of not having any running water at home, having to haul home every drop of water you use. And then in some cases, only having access to water sources that are dirty or that you can't be sure of the safety of. It's like you have to leave your home and spend all of this time that you could have been spending on your job or on your education or on playing with your kids you know, hauling water or driving to a neighbor or a friend's house or a truck stop to use a bathroom. And then, you know, to add insult to injury, the water you bring home sometimes isn't safe. And so it makes you sick. It really, it really does sound like something that you'd face in a low income or a developing country. Um, But yeah, it's, this is the reality, the daily reality for literally millions of people right here in the United States.
1: And it's not just in, it's not just the Navajo Nation, although that's a, a specific project but is it also true in Appalachia?
0: Yeah, it's true in Appalachia. I mean, we see it, like I said, in all 50 states, um, some urban areas, some rural areas, and in every place it's a little bit different. I think we did some work in 2019 to map this problem across the country. And like I said, look at that data and better understand what's going on. And we published the first national report on this issue. It's called (laughs) it <laughs> has got a mouthful, closing the water access gap in the United States. It's really easy to find on our website, digdeep.org. I think it's digdeep.org slash close the water gap. And, you know, we we heat mapped this across the country. And we said, okay, so, you know, if if we're experiencing this in all 50 states, like where where are people feeling this the, the most strongly? Like where should we start to make the biggest impact at Dig Deep? Our work began on the Navajo Nation, which is definitely the the highest concentration of this problem in the lower 48. It's, of folks there on the largest reservation in the country don't have running water or a flush toilet. And if that reservation were a state, it would be our our 10th biggest. It's like the size of West Virginia. It's huge. But they're not alone. I think you know. in the past few years, we've expanded our work at Dig Deep to serve families in Appalachia, working in rural West Virginia, Um, families in many cases who also haven't had running water ever or in decades. Uh, In some cases, maybe have running water, but it's It's black, it's dirty, it's unsafe to drink. And so we've been installing running water and I think we'll hit 150 homes there this year alone. We've been working in some uh, U.S. border communities in Texas near El Paso, um, a project that we hope to launch later this year or early next year. Um, And, you know, those are communities, again, that have existed for generations now um, and have never had the same access to services that other towns or communities sometimes just a couple miles away enjoy on a daily basis. Um, so that's where we're starting for now, Navajo, Appalachia, and the Texas border colonias. But we've been doing work to support other organizations that are starting this up or to support communities in problem solving in places like, you know, Alabama and Mississippi. We've done some work um, here in California with some community-based organizations. It's all over the country.
1: Wow. Well, so, so talk a little bit about the, this focus on infrastructure that's coming from uh, from Congress, is is that going to have any impact on on the issue of water?
0: A huge impact. Like you know, I I I can't speak to the to the legislation itself, but I think I think many of us working in this field see this as a really like generational, a chance to make a generational impact in the way folks in this country live. And I, you know, it's not just for folks without access to infrastructure. I mean, this would do this would make the the biggest Federal investment in recent memory in systems like you know water, wastewater, electricity—all the things that you know that many of us again take for granted, but so many people don't have access to—it would go a long way in serving Native Nations, Indigenous reservations, rural, and low-income communities where we work. Um, but you know, it's for all of us. You know, we we face we face a massive infrastructure disinvestment in this country. We haven't been paying our bills, essentially, and our infrastructure is falling apart. And that's starting to impact, you know, not just poor rural people, or low income rural folks, but also, you know, also middle to high income folks in urban areas, like our, our infrastructure is literally falling apart. I mean, you probably remember when we had that spate of water main breaks here in Southern California a couple years ago. Um, you know, and the, the news was like, you know, these, these water lines are over 100 years old. I mean, that's true. in almost every major city in the country. So, yeah. um, yes, yeah. I, I think this is a huge opportunity. Um, you know, no matter what comes out of it, I hope I hope we get some bipartisan deal that will that will give us an investment in our nation's infrastructure, because we're we couldn't you know, we couldn't be at a time where we need it more.
1: All right. So what did talk? Talk a little bit about what people can do to help dig deep, help the folks that you're focusing
0: on. Well, I mean, like most social problems in the U.S., like the core of this is really income inequality and money. So, you know, we are powered by a network of almost 50,000 grassroots donors, um, many of whom are people like yourself, Will, who have like gone out and told friends and family and colleagues and schoolmates and, you know, their Girl Scout troop or whatever. And um, it's been incredible to sort of be powered by Americans for Americans that way um, and to leverage that grassroots support to help people. And, you know, we've made it easy for folks by saying that, you know, when you donate to Dig Deep, hundred percent of your donation will go directly to a water project. We raise the money to cover like our overhead and to keep the lights on here, um, through corporate donors and through foundations and through some individuals who, who support our operations so that a hundred percent of public donations can go right to water projects. Um, so the number one way to help out is, To make a donation, honestly, like that's that's really what's needed here. These communities deserve the same level of investment that everybody else in this country enjoys. And the quickest way to close the water gap is to pay to close the water gap. But there are other ways to get involved too. Um, We have a pledge on our website, digdeep.org, that you can sign and receive periodic updates and you know sort of action items to um, spread the word about or to you know talk to your congressman about or something like that. One of I think the most interesting and creative ways to get involved is like, if you're having trouble connecting to this issue personally, or if you're just curious what life is like sort of for our clients and the people we work with every day, we have this really fun thing called the four liters challenge. Um, and well, maybe I should be challenging you to do this. A lot of our, a lot of our supporters say like, okay, for 24 hours, um, instead of using a hundred gallons of water today, I'm going to use one gallon or four liters. And uh, you know, I'm going to, drink two or three of them. And then the other, maybe two liters, one or two liters I'll I'll use for brushing my teeth and cooking my food. and But everything I do during the day, all the water I use during the day has to come out of this four liters. And it's amazing just doing that for 24 hours. You learn how to sort of plan your day according to how much water you have to do specific things, which is, of course, like the daily reality for millions of people in this country. And it's a real, real eye-opener. Uh-huh.
1: All right, so let's, let's take a break right now and come back. And when we come back, I, wanna, I want you to tell us about how you got to Dig Deep. Where were you before? And, and let's talk a little bit more about, about how, how communities can band together to support Dig
0: Deep. Does your company have a clear vision? Do you have the right people in the right seats? Are you consistently getting the results you want and enjoying the journey? If not, consider EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. EOS is a set of simple concepts and practical tools used by more than 100,000 companies around the world to clarify, simplify, and achieve their vision. Schedule your free 90-minute meeting with an EOS implementer at EOSWorldwide.com today. That's EOSWorldwide.com.
1: And now back to Will and his guest. So, George, tell us... Where were you before you started this dig deep thing?
0: (laughs) My mother loves to say, God has a plan. Um, Whenever anything, you know, strange happens or when something's not working out, I think that's, that's true in my life too. Like I, I look at the work I'm doing sometimes and how, how much I love it, just how incredible it is. And I think like, how did I end up here? It's a, it's definitely a, a circuitous path, but I, um, my background is in in international human rights law. And like your buddy who's building wells in Uganda, like I was always fascinated by water and, and really wanted to help people get it and thought, well, if I want to do that work, I have to work abroad. You know, I have to work in other countries where this is actually a problem, not knowing, not knowing to look in my own backyard. So I studied international law. I did some work for inside um, some governments and, I studied with a bunch of diplomats from the UN and I thought maybe that was the, that was the route I would take. And then as I embarked on some of this work, I kept getting closer and closer to the problem on the ground. I kind of thought I'd be like a desk guy. Like I'd be (laughs) maybe like a diplomat or, um, you know, someone writing policy. Um, but yeah, my, my work kind of grabbed me and in, in a series of trips early on in my career, brought me really close to the work happening on the ground in some low income countries. And I thought like, Oh, like, well, we can talk about what a human right to water means, um, and how much everybody deserves water, but like, this is really what matters. Like this work on the ground, this, this digging this hole or training, training these folks on hand washing or, you know, passing on this, this education, this information, like this is what's going to help people survive and thrive. And like any good millennial, (laughs) I thought, well, surely if other people are doing this, I can do it better. Um, so I, I started dig deep, uh, you know, in my, in my, in my spare time in my home office, which is really just a desk in my bedroom in 2011, our first projects were actually in sub-Saharan Africa. We worked in, in South Sudan and in Cameroon and we did really incredible work. Our focus was, you know, slow community-based development, like really empowering a community to make their own decisions around this and participate in the projects that were built to serve them and, and design them. You know, we did everything from... From bore wells with hand pumps and sanitation and hygiene training to, you know, full gravity fed spring systems in Cameroon that would, you know, capture mountain water and then deliver it using gravity to a series of water towers and spigots and water lines that would serve, you know, up to 20,000 people at a time. It was really incredible work, work I absolutely loved. And then this is the God has plan part. Then we got a call one afternoon in, in late 2013 from a woman named Karen and she said, you know, I'm Karen. I live in Ventura, California. I'd love to give you guys 50 bucks, but I, I want you to spend it here in the U.S. I want you to promise me that you're going to spend it in the U.S." I was like, Karen, <laughs> you must be crazy. Like, what are you talking about? Like, nobody, nobody needs that here. Like we're, why don't you let me spend your $50 where it'll really save someone's life in like South Sudan. And she, <laughs> she I think she called me a name that I, I probably should say And, uh, and she was like, well, how the hell do you not know that this is a problem in your own country? And and Karen had been doing a, a sort of Habitat for Humanity style project, building houses on the Navajo Nation in that same area where Darlene Arviso works. That woman, the, the water lady I told you about. Um, and she said, well, I've been out on the Navajo Nation building houses and none of the houses that we've been building have kitchens or bathrooms. And I asked my Navajo colleagues, like, you know, what's going on? They said, well. Nobody here has running water in this area. So why would we put a bathroom or a kitchen in this house? And she was trying to piece this together. Like, well, how do you live in a house without running water? And, you know, was not liking what she was seeing and, you know, thought she should do something about it. So I think she probably had a list of 50 or 60 organizations that she called in. We must have been at the very bottom of the list. And so by the time she got to me, she was very <laughs> frustrated. Um, and uh, hence, hence the name calling. But no, honestly, we've become great friends and she was the first to, to bring us out as an organization and introduce us to folks, including Darlene. And, and that's how the Navajo Water Project got its start. Um, there's some really great videos about that project in its early days on at NavajoWaterProject.org. Yeah, I think the rest is history. Once we started on Navajo and once other people in, in the country started seeing our work, um, in, you know, major news outlets like CBS Sunday morning or NPR, we started to get calls from folks all over the country saying, thought my community was the last one. I thought we were alone. never forget. I know I'm rambling, but this is, this is a fun story. I'll never forget. I got a call from this woman named Beverly Byers from South Carolina, an African-American woman in her, I want to say mid to late eighties. And she called and said, you know, my, um, grandparents were sharecroppers. You know, we grew up on a farm without running water. And then, you know, my parents grew up there and I grew up there. And, you know, during my my parents' tenure, we we got running water. And I remember as a kid, the feeling of turning on the tap for the first time and thinking like, oh, thank God, like I, we finally have running water. And she thought I was convinced that I was the last person in this country to get running water. Like I was, I was the last one at my school. It seemed like the last one in the county. I thought, you know, we live in the United States. Surely everyone has this. Why don't I have it? And so when I finally got it, I thought, well, thank God, I must be the last one. And she's like, you know, I, I was watching you on CBS Sunday morning. And I was just, she said, you know, now I'm now I'm an old lady. And it was so hard for me to see that this isn't just still a problem, but it's still for so many folks. And she called on the phone, and she ended up writing us a letter and, you know, sending us a little cash and an envelope later and, and our work started to grow and grow. And that's how we've been able to serve folks now in Appalachia and in the Texas colonias and how we've been able to do some of our our research and our policy work. And yeah, that's, that's, that's been the road for me. Uh, definitely a winding one. All
1: right. So when you look out into the future, five, 10 years from now, you'll still be there, right?
0: Yeah, I better be. Okay. A, well, either that or the problem will have been solved much faster than I thought, which is, which is good uh, well, too.
1: All right. So when you look out there five to 10 years from now, what do you see for Dig Deep?
0: You know, when I look five or ten years from now, I hope that Dig Deep is at the center of a universe of organizations and funders and champions and students and politicians that are, are really focused on solving this issue. I think, you know, two point two million people at least that water and sanitation access, that's a big number. But it it's honestly a completely solvable problem, especially in a country that is as well resourced and as intelligent and as creative as we are. What this problem really needs is a champion that can build a coalition. And I think that we have found those champions working in communities, people like Darlene Arviso, and hopefully bringing them together into community where they can learn from each other will inspire a bunch of other folks with a lot of power and and privilege and access to resources to get involved. And we're starting to see that, you know, President Biden included a bunch of information on the Navajo Water Project in his in his economic and environmental justice platforms during his uh, during his candidacy, and he was the first presidential candidate to really talk about this as an issue, I'm hoping we see that from candidates on both sides of the aisle going forward. I think we're seeing things like this infrastructure bill acknowledging a lack of water and sanitation access. We're seeing celebrities step up. One of the coolest moments of COVID was a friend called me and said, did you know that um, Neil Young is doing a live concert on Instagram right now on his front porch to benefit the Navajo Water Project? (laughs) I I was like, no, I had no idea. That's so cool. So like word is getting out there, but I think it's taken time and a lot of effort and intentionality to bring all these folks together in a way that we're sort of coordinated about how we're solving this problem and keeping the communities that are impacted really at the center of that work. And so in five to 10 years, what I'd really love to see is, is that community grow and become even more formal and to see all sorts of like I said, celebrities, companies, influencers, community members, scientists um, come together and figure out how we can close this water gap in our lifetimes. Because I think with the right inv- amount of inju- ingenuity and investment, we could we could really solve this problem in the next couple decades and and be done with it.
1: All right. So so let's get a little more specific about it. Uh, money. Uh, what kind of money yeah. would be helpful? I mean, we're talking hundreds yeah, so of thousands we're... of dollars, multi-millions. What what, what along the way, what kind of fundraising do you need?
0: So there's the money that Dig Deep needs to do its work, and then there's the money that, that will solve the problem long term. So I really fundamentally believe that it's, it is the government's responsibility to solve the lion's share of this problem. And our role at Dig Deep is to encourage them to do that by, A, showing them where the problem is and what it is, empowering community members to speak up for themselves, and then really demonstrating that this can be solved and that there are, you know, creative ways like that water trucking program on Navajo to solve it that are maybe a little unorthodox. It's it's not a water line that everyone's used to, but it's really effective. And so, you know, to do that work, we're talking probably millions of dollars a year that Dig Deep is raising and reinvesting in these communities. But really what needs to happen is that even as we continue that work, we need the, the federal government and state and county governments to come alongside us and say like, oh, we see that this is working and we understand now what the problem is and we know our role in solving it. And so just as a for example, um, part of the federal government, the Indian Health Service, which is part of the Bureau of the Interior, they keep a list. On all of the native nations, of all of the um, water and wastewater facilities that need to be built, they call it their sanitation facilities backlog list, or sanitation facilities construction <laughs> backlog, backlog. Right? it's a yeah. backlog. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a really ugly. Yeah, they could really use a sexier name, but anyway, their sanitation facilities construction backlog. Um, and when the backlog started that
1: 1880. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's been a
0: backlog since the beginning. Uh, nothing's changed there. Um, but at last count, they had um, thousands of projects, tens of thousands of projects on that list, and the total price tag for those is three point five billion dollars. Now, that's just on Native Nations. That you know, that's just on reservations. That doesn't address folks off of reservations in those same states or in other states without reservations. And so, I think we need to do a better job at the federal level of accurately measuring this problem and keeping that same kind of list. But in the meantime, even if we just started with that list. You know, since so many of these folks are indigenous, that would go a a long way in solving this problem. I think on Navajo alone, that would build something like 15,000 facilities if that would get funded by the federal government. But typically, Congress only puts a few tens of millions of dollars into that every year, not even enough to keep up with the inflation on the list. Infrastructure gets worse and worse and things fall apart and more gets added to that backlog. But I think like, uh, you know, we're talking, if we, if we really want to solve this problem in a massive way, we're, we're talking money in the billions. If we're talking about all of the water infrastructure in the country, really bringing it up to snuff, I think the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates that that's, that's a, that's a trillion or trillion and a half dollar job. Um, but it's one that we have to do if we want to stay healthy, economically competitive, if we want to be able to effectively ward off things like pandemics so that people can stay home and wash their hands and drink clean water. It's a big investment, but it's a worthwhile one.
1: Well, all right. So apart from raising money, what can communities do? I mean, if, if there were a group in Laguna Beach that said, we want to help, we can certainly raise money. That's something Laguna Beach does regularly. But what else <laughs> yep. can they do? How can they support, how can they help you accomplish the kinds of tasks that you've laid out?
0: Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, one, they can, you know, I, I'm not sure how how proximate Laguna Beach is to this, but, you know, in most communities in the United States, there is there is probably a community that's facing a water or sanitation challenge within a drive of you. For Laguna Beach, you know, that would probably be you know, some of the more inland agricultural communities in, say, the Central Valley, for instance, or not the Central Valley, but down in, like, the Imperial or Coachella Valleys. And I think that, like, yes, raising funds for Dig Deep and helping us do our work is really important, but also reaching out into your local community and figuring out who else is in need of assistance is really important. There are some, you know, church and religious groups that are doing this really well. So I, I think looking a little bit in our own backyards, figuring out, you know, if this is a problem near us and how we can be supportive, even of just helping people survive day to day. I think that's a huge first step. I think it's also really important for us to let the people that represent us in local, state and federal government know that this matters to us and that we have our eye on this. And it sounds kind of trite, like call your congressman, but that really matters. You know, as someone who, as someone who's worked on the Hill, like that, that, that really does matter. And honestly, I, the, the most helpful thing that anyone does on a daily basis is just talk about this problem and the solutions and our work with a friend, a colleague, someone you go to church with, you know, someone from your Rotary Club <laughs> that uh-huh. that has gone such a long, a long way in helping us build this coalition of folks that are solving this together. We, you know, we're, we're almost entirely built from word of mouth. And that has been such an incredible driving force for change.
1: Well, I can tell you two things that came up. One is uh, the, the Episcopal Bishop of Navajo Land. We've had him yeah. in conversations with, with, uh, with your designers, and they are talking about putting a plan together starting uh, February, March of next year to work specifically in the area that he is working with. And and in what will happen with that is we will go throughout the church and raise funds for that specific task, and that's a way of getting the word out, because I know that there are a number of different dioceses in the Episcopal Church that come to Navajo land to build buildings and to help with infrastructure, but they can be plugged into specific things like water. That's that's one way. A second way is I'm a Rotarian. And I am more than you are yeah, absolutely and And uh, I understand there's one Rotarian who's I think generated six hundred thousand dollars of funds uh and and I'm going to be talking with him. There's funds that we can generate out of the foundation, the Rotary Foundation, et cetera, but also, I'm willing to put together a speech for Rotary and to go around and begin talking. Lots of us, are, lots of rotary clubs are still online, so that would be fairly easy to do. But I can talk to your folks. Rotary again. is so yeah.
0: incredible. Yeah, rotary, rotary just blows my mind. I think you know what a lot of people don't know that Rotary is one of the biggest forces for good in in global water access, one of the single biggest yeah. funders. And you know this is, you know, for those that don't know, Rotary is you know this community of business and community leaders that get together. You know, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly to have breakfast and solve problems in our local communities and in communities halfway around the world by creating these linkages between clubs. And there are, you know, tens of thousands of clubs in almost every country. And so many clubs across this country have partnered with clubs in Canada, in Korea, in Mexico, and done what's called this global grant process where they've raised money and had it matched by the Rotary Foundation for the Navajo Water Project. These Rotary clubs and the Rotary Foundation were one of our our earliest our earliest sources of of really big support for this project, and that relationship has been such an incredible one. Just watching these men and women and their passion for for serving others has been so inspiring. So I'm so happy to hear you're a Rotarian. I love Rotarians. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, now I noticed that you have a uh, a Boy Scout Council T-shirt. Uh, uh i do so, so uh what's your connection with boy scouts
0: you know this t-shirt was given to me by a friend of mine uh it was his his counsel i think i uh, i only made it to tiger scout myself which you know <laughs> just one step above a wee below so i <laughs> uh, i think i think i'm living my like eagle scout days now for sure excellent, um, excellent.
1: Well, all right, so tell us tell us uh how would people how would people make a contribution?
0: Uh it's really easy to do. You can give online at digdeep.org. If you want your contribution to go specifically to one of our projects, like the Navajo Water Project or the Appalachia Water Project, you'll find links to those projects on that site. And if you give through those sites, all of that money will go directly to that project. And uh at digdeep.org slash give, there's also instructions on if you want to send a check-in, if you want to make a gift of stock. We're set up to do that. Yeah, I think we make it we make it really easy. But digdeep.org slash give is the place to start.
1: And, and now we can also put together campaigns. I mean, I could have people come to my giving account and give to Dig Deep through mine so that I could get that. Oh, my gosh, that's absolutely right.
0: Yeah, my development team would kill me for not mentioning that. But, yes, you can raise money online for Dig Deep. There's, um, there's a button that says start a fundraiser right on the main page. Um, and we have this software that'll set you up and make it really easy to contact friends and family, or coworkers, or people you're riding bikes with, or running a marathon with, or however you want to raise that money. Um, and we'll share media and information and make it really easy for you to make that case.
1: Well, I have a good friend of mine that's in a, a monthly meeting that we have, and and uh, he he challenged himself and said uh, I am going to go to the gym I'm going to get a trainer and I'm going to be there uh, at least 3 times a week and if I don't I'll give $1000 to dig deep <laughs> yes I think he's I think he's slipped up enough that he's going to write that <laughs> write that check
0: oh we love to hear it I mean like you know best wishes to him on his wellness journey but I think he can probably still accomplish his fitness goals and make a donation. <laughs>
1: right, I think that is coming. I'll be with him this Friday, and I'll be I'll be bringing the uh, bringing my uh, my laptop for him to push the button.
0: <laughs> yeah, get your get your hat out, shake it That's around right. a little
1: bit. Right. Well, George, this has been wonderful. I, I've been looking forward to this, and it has exceeded my my fondest expectations. So it's so good to meet you, and uh, I look forward to working with you to meet the needs of water all around this country.
0: Major ditto here, Will. Thanks so much. And I'm so happy to be connected through you to this business community in Southern California. And just to have this out there, I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Well, we're going to spread it around and let lots of people listen to it because this is a wonderful project and it makes such a huge difference. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate all the work your development team and your video team. Those videos are just magnificent. That picture of, uh, you know, of that young Navajo boy is just amazing. Uh, uh you know, I always find it just so exciting to see him there. I mean, that's one of your icons now, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that picture, just for those of you that haven't seen it, it just captures this moment when the first water is coming out of a tap. Like you can see the end of the water where it's like the first drops are coming out of the tap and the look on this kid's face when he, when he turned it on and it works and he turns to the camera It is really, yeah, it's such a moment. And, you know, that's, that's amazing. Those moments all over the country are really what keeps us going.
1: That's great. That is super. It is just such a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to doing it again.
0: Me too. Hopefully next time not from a car.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) we're all pilgrims on the 405 if you live in
0: Southern California. We're all pilgrims on the 405. That's exactly right. You've been listening to The Pilgrim on the 405 with Will Christ. To hear more of the programs in this podcast, go to www.willchrist.com.